0: are listening to audio from Community Bible Church. If you would like to find out more information about us, please visit us at cbcsavannah.com. Amen. Well, good morning. It's good to see you. I hope you're doing well. If we hadn't had the chance to meet, my name is Clint, and I'm one of the pastors on staff. And if you would, turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 5. 1 Peter 5, we're going to continue our series this morning. As you're turning there, I want to make you aware of some really exciting opportunities that are available to us as a church. Bill mentioned this last week, um, but every year we partner with an organization called Wycliffe Bible Translators, and they specialize in the work of translating the scriptures, the Word of God, into languages where it does not currently exist. And so we take uh, the entirety of our offering one Sunday, and that's today and we give that to Wycliffe uh, to fund a Bible translation project. So hopefully you grabbed one of these on your way in. If you didn't, you can get one on the way out. But um, we, uh, this is the project that we have this year that we had the opportunity to fund is a people group in Northern Africa, Um, over 5 million people who right now don't have have the Bible available to them in their native tongue. Um, We're going to be able to partner with God in this to give them not only a written copy of the scriptures, but an audio copy, um, because many of them uh, aren't able to read. And so uh, I just wanted to encourage us, how cool is it that we get to play a role in what God is doing on the other side of the planet, that we get to participate in the work that God's doing to give them, and we're going to see this today, to give them what they need for life and godliness, to put the word of God in their hands. And so hopefully, like I said, you got one of those handouts on the way in. My encouragement to you would be that you would prayerfully consider giving specifically to this project. Like I said, both gatherings online and in person, we're giving everything that comes in today to them to do that because we believe in tithing our best resources to the kingdom. That my money isn't my money, it belongs to God. The church's money isn't the church's money, it belongs to God. And we wanna partner in the work that he's doing around the world, we want to invite you to be a part of that. One more thing, today is also Go Sunday. That's what was going on out in the the street, if you saw that. I wish we did that every week, because that's awesome, just to see all those people out there. But um, if you've been a part of CBC for a while, you know that our hope is that every member of CBC would go on one of our trips at least once in their time here. And there's several reasons for that, but primarily in Matthew 28... The resurrected Jesus looks at his disciples and he gives them what we call the great commission. He says, I want you to go and make disciples of all nations. And because of that, at the very core of what it means to be a Christian is we are a sent people. We are a sent people. So as we become personally convinced of the good news of the gospel, which means we're loved by God, not because we deserve that from him, but because of who Christ is and what he's accomplished for us. As we become convinced personally of God's love for us, it compels us to take that good news and to share it with the people around us. And that starts in our homes and in our workplaces and in our neighborhoods, and it rolls to the ends of the earth. And so we go on trips. And we want to invite you to do that as well. Out in the street, uh, there's actually in the foyer, maybe you got this on the way in, there's a booklet that kind of lines out all our trips for 2022. That's next year, I think, yep. Um, and uh, there's a representat- representative. This is going to be a good morning. Uh, there's a representative at a table in front uh, of the street there and they can walk you through if you have any questions about the specific trips or, or whatever it might be. All right, First Peter chapter five. This is our second to last sermon in and through this little letter. Bill's going to finish it up next week. And remember, the apostle Peter is writing this to encourage a group of people who had been facing some pretty difficult opposition in their lives. And what we've seen is the cause of this difficulty was not just a, man, isn't life hard? It was directly because as followers of Jesus, Peter called them exiles, That because of their decision to follow after Jesus, they were living a life called exiles. And Peter's writing to encourage them not to give up. He was writing to remind them that although the life of following Jesus is difficult, it's worth it. That's his point in writing this letter. And so as he comes to the end, he starts to give them some final instructions on how to live their life as an exile. And that's what we're gonna see today. First Peter five, we're gonna spend a lot of time in verse eight to 11, looking at the how how do you live the life of an exile? But before we do that, I want to make sure we're on the same page with the why. And what I mean by why is why even bother? I mean, seriously. If the life of following Jesus means life is going to be more difficult, not it might be. Jesus in John 15 says, if the world hated me and since it hated me, it's going to hate you, no surprises. So if the life of following Jesus is going to be more difficult than why even bother, why not just make life as easy as possible? I want Peter to answer that question before we talk about the how. Chapter two, verse 9 I'll be on the screen or you can turn there. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So Peter says the reason why we live as exiles is because we have received mercy from God. In chapter one, he says it like this. Chapter one, verse three, he says, we have been born again, right? Born again, we had this living hope, born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, meaning we were dead in our sin, but we have been made alive in Christ. He says that we, chapter one, verse 18, he says we're ransomed from the feudal ways of our forefathers. This word ransom means to be bought out of. And he says, we're ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. He says that once we're not a people, but now we are a people, which means that as we are brought, ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus, as we're brought through him to be reconciled to God the Father, he is reconciling us to one another. That God is doing something in us, not just in you, but he's doing something in us. He's forming us into a a group of people he calls the church. And I think as Peter writes this letter, he is thinking of a conversation that he has with Jesus. So you don't have to turn there, but in Matthew 16, Jesus looks at his disciples and he says, who do people say that I am? And they start to answer. Some say you're John the Baptist. Some people say, you're like one of the prophets, like Jeremiah or Elijah, and they start answering him, and he says, okay, but, but who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you're the Christ. You are the Son of God, and Jesus goes, you're right. And what we have to understand is when Peter says, you're the Christ, that's not Jesus' last name. Is, this is his messianic title. This means from the beginning, When God gave a promise, there's one coming, there's a Messiah coming, he will come and he will take away the sins of the world. That's what Peter's saying is true about Jesus. He says, you are the Christ and Jesus says, yes. Verse 18, Matthew 16, I tell you, you are Peter and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And the rock he's talking about is not Peter, it's his confession. Jesus' church is not built on the gifts and talents of the people in it or what they can accomplish for God. The church is built on this confession of who Christ is and what he has accomplished for us, right? So here's your answer. Why even bother with Jesus if it means we have to live the life of the exile? Because Jesus is the Christ. Because he's the one that was promised who would come and take away the sins of the world. And here's the thing, he did. He did. And we stake our life on that claim regardless of what it means for us in this life because we know there's a day coming where he will return, the sky will crack open and Jesus will come back. And the Bible says he's gonna make all things new that he will wipe away every tear from your eye, that sin will be no more, no, no will be no more hurt, no more pain, no more guilt, no more shame. And we put all our eggs in the basket that Jesus is the Christ regardless of what it means because that's who he is, that's what he's done and that's what he promised he'll do. And so at the end of this letter, Peter wants us to know how do we live as exiles? How do we live as exiles? Let me read this for us. 1 Peter 5, starting in verse eight. He says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you suffered for a little while, The God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever. Amen. So the point of these few verses is pretty straightforward. Peter is saying, you want to know how to live the life of an exile, then you need to know this. You need to know we have an enemy. That's the point of this sermon. You need to, Peter's saying, it's not the the only thing you need to know about the exiled life. There's a lot of things, but right here he's saying, you need to know that we have an enemy. And he wants them to know that even though we have this promise from Jesus, that as we are formed by God into this church and, and Jesus gives us the promise that not even the gates of hell shall prevail against it, what he's saying is, it doesn't mean they're not gonna try because they will. And you need to know that we have an enemy. And in verse eight, Peter says this, be sober-minded, be watchful. The first two words he says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Other translations of this will be think clearly, be on alert. The word watchful here, literally translates to be woken from sleep. Right, so maybe this will help. A couple weeks ago, my wife and I took our boys to the zoo down in Jacksonville, and they were hyped about seeing the animals, okay? Particularly large cats. I don't know why we for whatever reason, watch the Disney shows that we probably shouldn't watch because it's kind of horrific for them, but they're really excited about seeing big tigers and, and big lions or whatever. So you know how we spent our time at the zoo? Just casually walking around. Didn't feel threatened at all, despite the fact we're surrounded by dangerous animals. No, no feeling of, of threat, right? We just casually walked around. Now, how different would our afternoon have been if someone makes an announcement, hey, don't be alarmed, nothing to worry about, just want to let you know that some of the animals have escaped. That would change our time at the zoo, would it not? And if it didn't change our time at the zoo, that would be foolish. And that's what Peter's saying. He's saying, that's how a lot of Christians live. And he's saying, wake up. Be sober-minded, be alert. He's saying, church, wake up. You have an enemy. If you want to know how to live as an exile, you need to know that we have an enemy. And more than that, you need to know, how can we f- or who is he? How can we fight against him? And, and how does he plan to attack us? And so that's for you list takers, note takers out here, that's the, the outline for the rest of our time. Who is our enemy? How does he plan to attack? And how can we fight against him? So who is our enemy? Verse eight, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So this word adversary, it literally means an enemy or an opponent. And so Peter comes right out and he says, your adversary, the devil, right? He gives him a name. And before we jump into this, let me address the tension here. We don't normally spend a lot of time talking about the devil um, at our church and for good reason, but uh, maybe you prefer it that way. That's one of my favorite things about this church because it freaks me out to talk about the devil. Maybe you're from a more charismatic background and you wish we would talk about it more. Either way, we don't normally spend a lot of time talking about the devil. So if, if you invited a friend this morning and you've been asking him for weeks and he finally came and now you're thinking, seriously, this is the week that you come, I'm sorry, all right? Can't blame me, we blame God because we <laughs> preach through books of the Bible and this is the passage that God has for us this morning right? He knows what he's doing. We can trust him. Um, There are typically two common mistakes that Christians make when it comes to the devil. We either obsess about him or we ignore him altogether, right? So he's either behind everything or he's behind nothing. So here's some examples. So you had this thing planned that you are super excited about. I mean, it's been weeks. It's been on the calendar. You've been looking forward to it. It's outside. You come to that day, it rains all day. Devil's out to get you. He's behind everything. Here's another example. You get up in the middle of the night, go to the bathroom, stub your toe. Devil got you again, right? But honestly, that might be him because there's, there's, on a, there's really no way to accurately describe that pain except for evil and demonic, you know? That's a joke. That's not really the devil there, okay? So he's either behind everything or he's behind nothing. And both of those, according to the Bible, are the wrong way to think about our enemy. I read an article this week from an organization called The Barna Group. If you hadn't heard of them, they are basically, they do, they collect data primarily in the intersection between faith and culture. So religious, spiritual data about Christians and non-Christians and that kind of thing. And so I'm gonna put a statement on the screen, not because it's true, because it's not, but The Barna Group surveyed 2,000 people who self-proclaimed to be Christians, okay? I'm a Jesus follower. I'm answering this question. This is how, this is the question they answered. The devil is not a living being, but rather he is just a symbol for evil. So they asked 2000 people who claim to be Christians, do you agree? 40% strongly agreed, that's true. 19% agreed somewhat, 8% did not know. Which means that somewhere close to 70% of people who said I'm a Jesus follower, I believe in the scriptures and I align my life to the authority of God's word said, the devil is either not a real being or I'm not sure. This is why Peter says, church, wake up. He wants us to know we have an enemy. He wants us to know who the enemy is, how he plans to attack and how we can defend against him. So the first thing we need to know about the enemy from 1 Peter 5 and from the the scriptures in general is he's real, he's real. Peter says, your adversary, the devil. The name devil is used 32 times in the ESV, which is the translation that we use. 47 times, uh, he's called Satan. That doesn't count all the other names he's given in the scriptures. The tempter, the deceiver, the evil one, the wicked one, the serpent in Genesis three, right? In almost all of those examples, what is clear is that he's talking about an actual being, not some generic force of evil. He's real. And second thing we need to know is he's not God's equal. He's not. So you read books, you watch movies, Hollywood portrays this idea of of good versus evil, right? The battle of good versus evil. And the thinking underneath that is that they're co-equal parts warring against, against each other and who's gonna win? That is not consistent with what the Bible teaches. Jesus says in Luke 10, verse 18, he tells his disciples, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And what Jesus is saying here is that Satan is a fallen angel. This means he is a created being. And if you are created by God, you are not God. You are not equal with him. He is a fallen angel. There is only one God, Satan is not him. What we learn from other places in the scriptures like Isaiah 14 and Revelation 12 is that because of his, Satan's desire to exalt himself above the authority of God and to usurp the authority of God, he is removed from heaven And some scholars say that as much as a third of the other angels were swept away with him because of their rebellion. So Satan hates God, but because he cannot destroy God, he sets his aim particularly on those who bear his image, which is who? Humanity. And more than that, he sets his aim on those who seek to offer God the praise that he wants for himself. This is what we see happening in Genesis chapter three. Satan shows up as a serpent to deceive Adam and Eve, he wants to corrupt their relationship with God. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But even after he is successful in tempting humanity to sin against God, God wants him to know, this is a battle you're not gonna win. First thing God says to Satan after he tempts Adam and Eve to sin, Genesis 3, verse 15, God says to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first promise of a Messiah in the scriptures. The Christ, this is the first time you see he's coming. To Satan, moments after his first victory to tempt them to sin against God. And God says, hey, listen, you're not gonna win this fight. There's one coming and you'll bruise his heel, but he is going to crush your head. So Satan makes it his mission to destroy humanity to save himself, to prevent his own destruction. And when Jesus comes on the scene, Satan does everything he can. He's looking out, is this the one? I think this is the one. So he does everything he can to prevent Jesus from doing what God said he was gonna do. He tries to have him killed. You read this in Matthew two and three, where Jesus, a man named Herod tries to kill to, to save his own throne, so Jesus has to run away. When that doesn't work, Satan does everything he can to get Jesus to sin, because he knows if he can get Jesus to sin, then Jesus would no longer be our perfect substitute. He would no longer be able to offer his life in our place to reconcile us to God, and so he throws everything he can at Jesus, but none of it works, and Jesus lives a perfect sinless life. He dies the death that we deserve on the cross, paying the penalty for our sin. And three days later, he raises again, overcoming sin and death. And Satan knew at that moment in redemptive history, the battle with God was lost forever. When Jesus accomplished for us what he accomplished on the cross, Satan knew the battle with God is lost forever. Somebody should say amen. But Revelation 12 said this is how he responds. Revelation 12, verse 17 i underlined a few things because we don't have time to jump into the figurative language of Revelation, but here's what it says. When Satan saw what happened on the cross, he became furious and he went off to make war on the rest of those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And so because he couldn't defeat God and because Jesus accomplished what he came to accomplish, Satan becomes furious and he sets his aim to war against anyone who would live their life believing in who Christ is and what he has accomplished for them in church. Who's that talking about? That is us. We are the ones who seek to keep the commandments of God. We are the ones who seek to cling to the promises of Jesus and his testimony. And so Peter says, Church, wake up. You have an enemy. And he lost his fight on the cross, and there's a day coming when Jesus returns where he will be ultimately defeated. But in the meantime, he's doing whatever he can to rob you of the life and the joy that is available to you in Christ Jesus. He's doing whatever he can to make you as ineffective as possible for the kingdom of God. More than anything else, Satan doesn't want you to become 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10 you are chosen race, a holy priesthood that you may what, proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into your marvelous light. He wants to keep you proclaiming the excellencies of anything and everything else. Wants to make you as ineffective as possible for the kingdom of God. He says, that is your enemy. He is the devil, right? So how does he attack? Let's look back at verse eight. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. So this word devour, it means to swallow up, to swallow whole, which means that that Satan isn't trying to trip you up, doesn't want you to have a bad day, he wants to consume you, wants to absolutely devour you. And this is the mission statement of our enemy, prowling around, looking for someone to devour. It's like what Jesus says in John 10, the thief comes only to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But I came, he says, that you may have life and have it abundantly. And verse eight is an interesting statement when you think about it, because there's one word that doesn't seem to fit with the rest. So a lion prowling around, looking to devour someone, that makes sense, right? Um, But there's a word here that's out of place and it's the word roaring. So I don't know how much Animal Planet you watch, but lions don't roar when they hunt. They don't roar when they hunt. They sneak up on you, they attack you before you even know they're there. And if you don't watch Animal Planet, I know you've seen The Lion King, all right? Mufasa gives us a lesson on all this. Lions don't roar when they hunt. So when do they roar? They roar when they want to intimidate their prey. And I don't want to read too much into Peter's illustration here, but I think he's being intentional to help us understand how this enemy seeks to attack us. Lions roar when they want to announce their presence and instill fear into the animals who hear them. I read this week that the roar of a lion can be heard five miles away. Five miles away, right? So how do you think other animals respond when they hear the roar of a lion? Like not in the zoo, but like really. Maybe they're sitting under a tree, nice day like today, dozing off, and then they hear a roar. They wake up. And that's what Peter's saying. Church, wake up. You have an enemy and one of the best things that we can do as Christians is learn to recognize the roar of the enemy in our lives. Learning to recognize the roar of the enemy in our lives the way that he seeks to instill fear into us and to make us ineffective for the kingdom of God. So how does he do this? I think one of the ways that we can see how he roars or seeks to attack us is through the names that he's given In the scriptures, let me show you a couple of these. John eight, verse forty four. Jesus says this. Skip about a third of the way in. He says he was a murderer from the beginning. Doesn't stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Jesus calls Satan a liar, but it's not just that he lies every once in a while. That's who he is. It's a part of his character. It's a part of his nature. He is a liar. And this is one of the distinctive ways that he seeks to attack the people of God. One of the distinctive roars of the enemy in your life and in mine are lies. Think Genesis 3. Adam and Eve in the garden enjoying perfect relationship with God, perfect relationship with one another, and the serpent slips in with what? A lie. And no pleasantries, no introduction. He just comes up to Eve and he says, did God actually say that you shouldn't eat from that tree? Did he really say that? And Eve responds, she can get a bad rap for it, but I think she responds positively. She's like, yeah, he said we could have it all. The whole garden is for us, for us to enjoy, to have dominion over. He said we could have it all, but just not this one tree because he said if we ate that, we die and we just trust him in that. He goes, you will not surely die. So he's, question- he's trying to get uh, Eve to question God's goodness. Basically what the enemy says to Eve is, are you sure? Are you sure that God said that you shouldn't eat from that tree too? What would be so bad about that, right? Trying to get God's people to question God's goodness. And typically the way he does this is he gets us to question what God has said. Question the word. And he roars this way in our lives as well. It's the thought in your mind that pops up that goes, did God really say that I shouldn't have that? Did God really say that that sex was just for marriage? Did he really say that his design for marriage was just one man and one woman for one lifetime? Did he really say that? I thought God was good. If God was good, wouldn't he want me to be happy? And who is he anyways to say what is going to make me happy, right? This is the type of thing, the thoughts in your mind that are the lies of the enemy that we need to learn to recognize in our lives. It's his attempt to devour us. Peter says, church, wake up. The Bible also calls Satan a tempter directly calls him a tempter in in Matthew chapter four. And real quick, I need to say this. Satan is not the only source of temptation. Remember, he's not everywhere, but he's not nowhere. There is a source of temptation that comes from what the Bible calls the flesh, that comes from inside of us, but directly calls Satan the tempter. He himself is the tempter. He comes with temptations. And the difference between temptations and lies is not, did God really say? Temptations are when you know, God says go this way. This is the path to life, but I want this. And you do it anyways. Temptations are when you feel the need to go around God rather than to God in order to be satisfied in your life. And we need to learn to recognize the temptation of the enemy and our flesh, because here's the thing. Satan uses the pleasures of this world to lull us to sleep, Peter says, church, wake up. Satan uses the pleasures of this world to lull us to sleep, to make us as ineffective as possible as proclaimers of the excellencies of God. The attack of the enemy is not always gonna come in ways that you would expect. There are things that are outright sin, and that's how we expect temptations to come, right? It's sin, if you do it, it's sin. Not black, it's black and white, no gray area. But that's not the only way he'll attack. I'm talking about things like food, social media, Netflix, alcohol, hobbies, your toys, your car, whatever. He doesn't always attack the way you think you're going to. And and those things in and of themselves, they're not inherently bad. But I heard a pastor say this week that those things in the hands of Satan become pacifiers in the mouths of those who would otherwise proclaim the excellencies of their God. And you know what I mean when I say pacifier? I got a my middle son, Brooks, he'll be four in April and he still loves his passy. I get it. Turn your nose up at me if you want. It's a discipleship issue, okay? I'm trying to get him to memorize 1 Corinthians 13, 11. Paul says, when I became a man, I put childish things away. I'm like, son, that's what the word says. Um, I'm kidding, but we are working on it. Anyways, he still loves it. And he tries to talk to me with his passy in his mouth and I can't hear him. I can hear him, I can't understand what he's saying. And so I have to say, son, take your pasty out of your mouth and tell me what you're trying to say. And the the point that I'm trying to make here is that our infatuation with the pleasures of this world are like that to us. They prevent us from being effective proclaimers of the the excellencies of our God because we spend more time talking about our hobbies and the show we just watched how how well we played last weekend. We spend more time talking about our hobbies. And listen, Satan is content to give us our hobbies. He wants you to play well so you will proclaim how excellent you are and it keeps you from proclaiming how beautiful God is. But he takes offense when we start trying to live uh, Revelation 12 where we keep the commandments of God and we cling to the testimony of Jesus. We start living that way. It reminds him of what happened to him on the cross. It reminds him of what God promised back in Genesis 3. That there's a day coming where your head will be crushed, where you'll be thrown into the lake of fire forever. He takes offense to that type of life, and that's the type of life that Jesus says not even the gates of hell will stand against. He's a liar. He's a tempter. And let me give you one more that I don't have time for. Here in chapter 5, Peter calls him the devil. 1 Peter 5, he says, your adversary, the devil. That word means accuser, literally means slanderer, or accuser, and Peter says, your enemy prowls around like a roaring lion seeking to devour you by accusing you, by reminding you of your sin and all the reasons why you're not the person that you want everyone else to think you are. This is one of the ways that Satan seeks to devour us by his accusations. This is the thought in your mind that pumps up that says, you wanna pray? You want to read your Bible, you want to go to church, you want to share the gospel with someone, really? You can't do that. Have you forgotten about the time you fill in the blank? You want to worship God? Some of you are having this thought this morning, right now. You want to go to church, you want to worship God, you want to listen to God, offer Him your praise, you want to sit here, you're a pretender, you're a failure. What happened on the way to church this morning? These are the accusations of the enemy that come that say, you don't belong, you don't measure up. Have you forgotten who you are? Have you forgotten what you have done? It's the thought in your mind that seemingly comes out of nowhere that says, I'm a horrible father. You blow up at your kids and the Satan goes, yep, that's who you are. You're a failure. And then you wanna go preach God's word to God's people. You're a pretender and they're gonna find you out. And that's a completely hypothetical scenario. It's never happened to me. Peter says, this is how your enemy attacks. He's a liar. He's a tempter. He's an accuser. And although he's already ultimately been defeated through the personal work of Jesus, he roars to intimidate you, to instill fear in you, to make you as ineffective as possible for the kingdom of God. His goal is for you to question the goodness of God. He wants you to believe that you have to go around God rather than to him in order to be satisfied. He wants you to feel alone. He wants you to feel like no one could ever love you and no one will. He wants you to feel like no one understands what you're going through so that you'll turn to yourself rather than turn to, the, to God for answers. He wants you to feel like no one understands so you'll turn in rather than turning to the people of God for answers and he wants you to take the pain that you feel and just stuff it down deeper and deeper and deeper and pretend like you're okay so that those wounds will become affected and you will be consumed. He's a liar and a tempter and an accuser and Peter says, church, wake up. This is your enemy, and this is how he attacks. But look at what he says next in verse nine. He says, resist him. Resist him. He's saying, I know the exiled life is difficult, but here's how you fight against him. Resist him. And he's gonna tell us essentially one way. There's really only one answer, and there's kind of two subpoints. but you can think about it three different ways. I'm gonna give us three. I wanna show you three three ways very quickly how we resist the enemy. He says, verse nine, resist him, firm in your faith, knowing the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you've suffered a little while, the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever, amen. Here's the first way, the only way really that we fight against the attack of the enemy as we stand firm in your faith. Not a generic the faith. You defend yourself against the attack of the enemy by you standing firm in your faith. And I could preach a whole sermon on what that means and how you do it, but the point Peter is making is the primary way that we resist the enemy is by faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ. The good news is, that you are loved by God, not because of what you've done or who you are, but because of who Christ is and what he's done for you. And you position yourself firmly on that rock and you don't slip your foot over to the sand that says, yeah, but what about these things that I've done or what about this or that? No, 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 you come back and the way you defend against the attacks of the enemy is by paying attention to Jesus. Let me show us how we do this. We resist the enemy by planting our feet firmly, on the gospel, Peter says, stand firm in your faith. And here's the short version. Because if you don't want to wreck your car, you don't spend your life looking at the ditch. You look at the road. And so to de- defeat the enemy, we don't look at the enemy. We pay attention to Jesus. So here's how this works. When you hear lies and accusations, when you hear, hey, did God really say you shouldn't do that? did he actually say that that wasn't good? I thought he was a good God and wouldn't a good God want you to be happy? When you hear the lies of the enemy causing you to question the word of God, when he's saying, did God really say you resist him the same way that Jesus resisted the enemy in the wilderness in Matthew chapter four, when he says, did God really say? He goes, yep, and he quotes scripture. So you combat the lies of the enemy with the truth of God. Let me give you some examples. When the lie comes, it says, there's no way anyone could love you, especially not God, you go, Romans 8, for I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, and if that didn't covet, nor anything else, in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. And he goes, Yeah, okay, that's true, but, but what about your sin? What about all the things that you still struggle with? You've been following Jesus for 10, 20, 30 years. Wouldn't you think you'd be over it by now? What about all of that? And you go, yeah, Psalm 103, verse 12, as far as the East is from the West, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And he says, okay. But you know the guilt you feel. You know about the shame that you feel on a regular basis. If God loves you so much, what's up with that? And you hit him with Romans 8. For there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We resist the attack of the enemy by staying close to Jesus, by clinging to him through faith. The center point of the Christian faith is what we're gonna sing here in a moment. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Let me share with you this quote from Martin Luther This is the best thing I read all week outside of the Word of God. I can't say it any better. He says, when the devil accuses us and says, you're a sinner and therefore damned, we should answer, because you say I'm a sinner, I will be righteous and saved. He goes, no, you will be damned. And I replied, no, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. Satan, you will not prevail against me when you try to terrify me by setting forth the greatness of my sins. You try to bring me into heaviness and distrust and despair and hatred and contempt and blasphemy against God. On the contrary, when you say I'm a sinner, all you're doing is giving me armor and weapons against you so that with your own sword, I'll cut your throat and tread you under my feet for Christ died for sinners. And he says, as often as you object that I'm a sinner so often, and you remind me of the benefit of Christ, my Redeemer, on whose shoulders lay all of my sin, not my own. So every time the enemy accuses him, he says, you're just reminding me of how good Jesus is. So when you say I'm a sinner, you don't terrify me, but you comfort me immeasurably. Church, the way we fight lies and accusation of the enemy is not with our resume, but with the person and work of Jesus. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus puts our name at the top, and he says, all this counts for you. That's the good news of the gospel, right? And I need to say this. When you say stand firm in your faith, there's, there, for me, usually there's something in the back of my mind that says, yeah, yeah, but I don't fully believe that all the time. What about my doubts? And I don't have time to go into all that, but I want to say this. Faith is not the absence of doubt. Now, we see in Mark 9, the dad whose son's healed, he says, I believe Help my unbelief. Faith is not the absence of doubt. And I wanna, if you hear anything about that, I wanna say this. A weak faith in an almighty God is more than enough. Christian faith is rooted not in the absence of our doubt, but in the abundance of our hope. That's the first one. I'm gonna do the other two really quickly, I promise. So we stand firm in our faith, and here's the second one, verse nine. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing this, the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Essentially, what Peter is saying is this. No, you're not alone. The way we resist the enemy is we stand firm in our faith and we know that we are not alone. The enemy wants you to withdraw from God's people. He wants you to withdraw from God's people. One of his favorite lies to tell us, no one understands and no one ever will. No one understands your temptation. No one understands your pain. No one understands what you are going through. And like a lion, what he wants to do is take the injured and the weak and remove them from the pack so they become easier prey. And you feel this thing that says, hey, you don't need to go to community group this week. And how easy is it to justify? Man, I had a busy week. I don't need to go. I don't need to be with God's people on Sunday morning, right? You know what would be better if I just sit at home and and scroll on social media? That's gonna make me feel a lot better. And when you say it like that, it sounds silly, but how many of you do that? He's gonna tell you that if you go, you're gonna be judged. No one will understand you, right? The enemy's lies take root best in the soil of the Christian who's disconnected from the faith, disconnected from the family of faith. And the way we fight against the attack of the enemy is with the family of God. It's what we're doing now. That we come in here, every single one of us, open-handed saying, we don't deserve any of it, but he's given us all he has in Jesus. And we receive that with a posture of gratitude. We position ourselves under the word of God. We remember who our God is, what he's accomplished for us. And then we go and be the church. We go and be proclaimers of the excellencies of our God who's called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is why being part of a local church is so important. That's why it's not, man, I'll go if I don't have something else going on. That's why membership's important. Because the lies of the enemy take root best in the soil of the soul of Christian who is disconnected from the family of faith. Here's the last one, verse 10. After you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion forever and ever Amen. Peter says, the way that we fight the enemy is that we stand firm in our faith. We know we're not alone. He says, you look to the future. You look to the future. He says, life may be difficult now, but there's coming a day where Jesus will return and he will make all things new. He says, God himself will restore you, confirm strengthen and establish you. That means he's not mediating it out through angels. God himself, Revelation says, will wipe away every tear from your eye. Neither shall there be mourning, nor pain, nor crying anymore, for the former things have passed away. God says, behold, I'm making all things new. And Peter says, you wanna defend against the attack of the enemy, you look to the future, to the day where that sky cracks open and Jesus comes back, not as a baby, but as a king. And Philippians 2 says that one day, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord, and on that day, God will look at you because of your faith in him and say, well done. And he says, you know what this, when he says, and after you've suffered for a little while, you know what that little while is talking about? Your whole life, your whole life. He says, that day is going to be so good. He's not trying to trivialize your pain here or the difficulty of what you're walking through. He says, that day is going to be so good. When you look back at this, from that vantage point, you go, it was just a little while. we look to the hope that we have in Jesus. The devil is our accuser. I want to end this way. The devil is our accuser. First John says that Jesus is our advocate. He's our advocate. And our accuser says this to us. The word we hear from the accuser is, Don't forget who you are. Don't forget what you've done. And our advocate says, don't forget who I am. Don't forget what I have done for you. And so we remember. We gather together as the people of God to remember to get our feet off the sand, back on the rock that Jesus says he'll build his church. We hold fast to the confession of our faith, the testimony that Jesus accomplished for us what we could never accomplish for ourselves. And we remember it together. And we're gonna remember together, church, the way that Jesus says we should. And so the night before Jesus died on the cross, if you're serving communion, if you would go and do that, go ahead and get ready. But the night before Jesus died on the cross for our sins, he was in a room with his closest followers. And he does something that was really familiar to them. They were having the Passover feast. They had had it a ton. They had it three times with Jesus, at least, right? So he's with them. He breaks the bread. He says, my body broken for you. They're like, what? And he takes the cup and he pours it out and he said, this is my blood shed for you. And he says, as often as you take this meal, I want you to do this in remembrance of me. And what he's saying is, when you get the bread in your hand, you get the cup in your hand, you get this the, the thought of who Christ is and what he's done. It's not just a thought, you get it out of your head and you put it in your hands. And you go, Jesus gave his life for me. I belong as a son or a daughter to the God of the universe, because he gave his life for me. And the enemy lies and accuses and tempts me to go around God rather than to God in order to be satisfied. But I know that at this table, in this meal with my father, this is where I will be satisfied. And i look to the day where he'll come back. He gives us the promise. He himself will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. That's what we're doing here. And so I'm gonna give you some space, just a few minutes to respond. Gardner and the team, you are gonna sing a song over us. Um, If you would, go ahead and come on down. You guys can start passing. But as they pass the elements out, I just wanna give you some time just to sit and and to consider, consider Jesus. Consider where maybe you've given in to temptation, where you need to repent, where you need to bring to Jesus, knowing that he will forgive you because his grace is sufficient for you. Just take a few moments. Consider this, and then I'll come back up here. We'll take communion together. Just a brief word. If you're not a Christian, this is a a meal for the family of God. If you say, I don't believe that. Not, I struggle to believe that because none of us believe it perfectly. But if you say, man, that's not who I am, then you just let it pass. But if you want to receive Jesus, if you want to trust him as the Lord, as who he says we are, I'd love to talk with you. I'd love to pray with you. I'll be right over here. The band's going to sing over us, then I'll be back up. Take this meal together.